what they want is for it to be intuitive. So when we like think about how we're designing and what we're building, we'll think about making something simple, but not simplistic, right? We should be very guided in how we're leading them to the next best action. But at any given moment, we're also surrendering control to say, you know better than us what to do here, go for it. But if you're not sure, or you want help, like we got your back and we can walk you through that with tutorials and recipes and templates and like really help you get set up, but you're not locked or constrained to any of that. That as a design principle and kind of like guiding philosophy is, is challenging, right? Like how do I give them all of this firepower, but not make it inundating and still keep it intuitive and approachable, right? Welcome to the What is UX podcast, the show where we interview design leaders about their journey and experience so that you may learn from them. I'm your host, Peck Pompat. Today, we have an exciting guest and old friend of mine. His name is Shay Howe, and he is the VP of Platform Strategy and formerly the VP of Product Design at Active Campaign. Welcome to the show, Shay. Peck, thank you for having me. I'm excited yeah. to catch up. Appreciate it. How long have we known each other? Not a decade, but probably coming up on. It's got to be, be a decade because I've met you in Chicago and I've been gone to the Bay Area for over a decade. So it's got to okay. be Okay. It is. Now. Right. <laughs> We're also getting old then. We <laughs> so are I'm totally kidding. getting old. Yeah. I'd like to cover people's careers because some of our audiences are, are new to UX design and they're just trying mm -hmm. to navigate their career. So I like to ask questions like, Hey, how'd you get your first design job? How'd you get into design? So maybe we can get into that. Yeah. yeah. So the, to break that question into two, like how'd I get into design versus like, what was my first job? I got into design actually as a musician and it was, Hey, we, we need to design flyers to get people to come out to shows or we need to design uh, album art or covers for like our, you know, records or what have you and got like a copy of, of Photoshop and just kind of fell in love with like how to do something creative that wasn't musical, like more digital, but still with the sense of like, how do I solve a problem with this? As in like, what's the information I got to put on this flyer to get people to come to a show? What is the right layout to like draw their attention to the key elements of location, time, cost, uh, lineup, things like that. So it was largely through music that I kind of got looped into it and not only doing it for like the band I was in, but all the other bands that we would play with or just kind of like travel and be around. So when it came time to go to school, it was like, that's like, I actually like really enjoyed that. And I think that could be a career. So it was uh, kind of just like fell into it by luck, more or less. The first job is an interesting one. Like I knew I wasn't good enough for anyone to pay me to do these things, <laughs> right? Like it's, it's like, I'm, I'm very specific. I was like, I want to build websites. Like I want to focus on that end of it. So actually, while in high school, I started just like reaching out and getting connected to a few different nonprofits where I knew like they could probably use someone who was willing to like work on these things and support them. And also like prior organizations that didn't have large budgets to go hire an agency or to get this professionally done. And this is years ago, right? So maybe that like your square spaces of the world didn't exist and things like that, right? Like if you wanted a website, like you had to build it, you know, largely by code. So I just started working with some nonprofits and word of mouth kind of like took off there, right? I did a website for the Association of Retarded Citizens. They referred me over to a food bank. Like it just like started to grow and kind of, I was able to build out a portfolio from there. And then when I felt I was like professionally adept, I actually found a job through Craigslist to get a job at like a web design uh, an agency. So 
Great. Yeah, I think when when people first start out, you know, to to your point, right? Like if you're you don't have any experience under your belt, nobody's going to pay you to be a designer yet and and a lot of people have that challenge like, well, how can I get my first job if I don't have any experience, if I don't have experience? And it's that that loop, but yeah. yes, I think like nonprofits are great, small business, music totally. bands, they don't have money, yeah. right? Yeah. So these these are great first clients, so, you know, your local small business. I like the nonprofits as a plus one because, and I'll tell you why, because they may not have a lot of money, but typically nonprofits may have board members mm-hmm. who work for business, you know, big companies or they may head big companies. So you do a good, good job for the nonprofit and then they know you yeah. uh, and you're building your reputation that way. Yeah. There's something too about that. Like a lot of like, Outside that, it's like working on passion projects or just trying to build a website around something you're like you're you're technically like excited about. But it's having a client too, right? And like all the skill sets that go into, hey, how do I sell my work to them, right? Like how do I actually get involved in those level of critiques and discussions that you wouldn't get if you're just kind of doing like your own little uh, side projects, if you will. It's not a knock on side projects, but for me, I think younger and earlier in my career, it was important to actually take some lessons learned early. Yeah, that, that's really important. You you hit on a nail there where maybe some of my advice is, yeah, go go redesign something that you're passionate about or, or something that you want to get into, mm-hmm. but without an actual client to give you feedback, you're not working that muscle of that client uh, customer owner relationship and you don't you don't get to develop those skills. Yep. So you're you're absolutely right. That even if you don't get paid, you, you should do some client work just so that you have that muscle. Yeah. And there's value to each, right? Like and if, if I wasn't doing my own passion projects, I, I wouldn't be learning probably as much and like, like more leading or breaking edge technology in the way to like do some really like wild and creative things that like people probably don't want on their website yet. Right. So I think like balancing the two has been like pretty important for me in my career. Yeah. As an agency, how we got our first Apple watch work was uh, a passion project. I mean, when yeah. the Apple Watch was first announced, I immediately got drawn by, I thought that was the coolest thing. So I, you know, I told the team how to like, hey, let's think about what, what an Apple Watch app could look like, right? And, and we mm-hmm. concepted what a Starbucks Apple Watch would look like with Apple Pay. And we, we mocked mm-hmm. that up and we created the interaction. We put it out there, we put it on Dribble. And immediately, a lot of news sites picked it up. Yeah. Like Apple sites picked it up. It's like, oh, Starbucks Apple Watch could look like this, or payments could look like this on the Apple Watch. Payment sites start picking it up. It didn't exist, and uh, because it, it literally just came out, and we, I was so excited, like, let's think about it. And then uh, a department store came and said, hey, you know, saw you guys did this, and we we, we want to do an Apple watch app and nobody else had any experience. I was like, well, it literally just came out. So of course nobody had any experience. So we yeah. were the first to market just because, yeah. you know, if we had waited for a Starbucks to hire us, we, it would have never happened. Right. So, yeah. so just taking that initiative to explore something new and cutting edge, I think is, could be very useful in, in getting that experience. What I love about that story too, is you're doing something that like, there's a constraint there. So you're you, like, no one's done this on a watch before. What, like, what would this actually look like on a watch? How do we like mend this into a new medium? Right. And then like even layering and payments through a watch, like now you're actually talking about like a total like shift in like consumer behavior. And like, those are really interesting, like constraints to like just conceptualize around. I like that. 
Yeah. And, and you, you get to learn so many things, right? Like, you know, the, the, depending on the Apple Watch, maybe, you know, typically in an interface, you might have like a button on the left and the right. But because the, the watch face is so small, like a left and a right button, it does, doesn't work. Maybe it's, you know, with a watch, the Apple Watch, yeah. maybe it, it's just two buttons on top of each other and, and make it wider, for example, right? If you're, uh, and, and that's the stuff you, you don't really know unless you kind of really dig into it. Yeah. I like it. It reminds me of like, um, of like the first, like a uh, few iPhones that came out, right. I don't know if you remember the first one, but like you couldn't even send picture messages like with the <laughs> original iPhone. Right. And I remember like there was no app store, but a lot of people were building just websites for the iPhone. Right. Like I remember urban spoon. I don't know if you ever used it back in the day where it was like, you just like load it up in the browser, like Safari, and maybe you could hit a little button, it would spin and then tell you like, here's like five nearby restaurants if you're having trouble picking. And like eventually like built into an app outside of that. But like a lot of people were just like taking that idea and finding ways to get it into the original iPhone, which is really fun to see. Yeah. Well, that's a great segue into uh, a company you used to work at, uh, Belly, and you were the yeah. VP of product and you were uh, in charge of product and design. Give us a little taste, pun intended, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> of uh, you know just just being a VP of product there and and what the work looked like at Belly and the design and, and the design yeah. work. Yeah, so Belly, like just to just set the stage for a second, it was uh, a rewards program largely for small businesses where they would get an iPad to put at their point of sale by the cash register, and then their customers could sign up on that iPad to join their rewards program. And they could use a little key fob or a mobile app to kind of check in on that iPad and earn points that they could spend on rewards. Um, and we, you know, it, your kind of stereotypical startup story, right? Started small, very scrappy team, built an original product, used that to go get some funding, use that funding to grow a bit, begin to get traction, go raise more money. So all in all, I think we raised... I don't know, like north of $30 million from largely Andreessen Horowitz, which like an incredible venture capital firm and just like an amazing series of lessons from them. I led the design and product team, which in the early days, like the designers were the product managers, quite honestly. Like we didn't, we didn't hire like formal product managers you might find in an organization today. It's a, that lens of when you're young, you, you got to do it all, right? Like uh, we're scrappy. We're just trying to figure this out and put it together. But I think at our height, we probably had, I don't know, a dozen designers and product managers uh, working with an engineering org, like 30 or 40 engineers and doing everything from what was the, the iPad app into mobile apps for what would be iOS and Android, as well as like our, our desktop website. And we were doing that both for a two-sided marketplace, right? So you have all the businesses that are logging in and using like a command center to kind of run their rewards program. And then you have consumers logging in to, to manage all their points and where they're redeeming rewards and things like that. So uh, a two-sided marketplace, which is very tricky uh, and difficult to build, but incredibly rewarding to get it off the ground. Yeah. Well, Lightbank had this playbook, right, from Groupon, that just a ton of sales, you know, a field yeah. of, football field of salespeople. Was that similar at, at Belly? Yeah. Yeah. Sales is a big part of it. Yeah. And like Belly was one where uh, very market 
driven and focused, right? So activating in Chicago and Milwaukee, et cetera. And so like Logan LaHive, the, the founder, like, you know, just never forget Logan, like running up and down Broadway in Chicago on a Vespa, just like door to door signing up businesses. <laughs> wow. That, um, I didn't know about his hustle there. Um, oh yeah. yeah an incredible one. Yeah, absolutely. Um, And then we would like to go open a new market. We would basically just rent an Airbnb and ship out a sales team uh, and just have them do that, like that same playbook door to door and get it set up. And then we'd hire a few folks in market to kind of maintain it and manage it as we grew. So yeah, heavy sales and kind of operation presence. I I do have to, I, I, I did get to experience belly and I like having, I remember, I recall a particular experience that you, you have a stack of fobs there mm-hmm. so that the, the onboarding was so frictionless, right? Like yeah. if, if you thought of as like, maybe, maybe other companies are like, well, download this app and, or text this number. It's like friction, friction, friction. Yeah. It's like, oh, you want to get started? Just grab a fob from a stack and then just scan that you're done. You're, you're yep. good to go that, you know, it's, it's not a software solution, but I think the, I would say the, the user experience design, you know, whether online or offline, that that made it really frictionless. So whoever yeah. came up with that was was brilliant. Yeah, we there was like so that was back in the day when like there was no mobile device management. Like those tools didn't exist. People doing things with iPads was like fairly like new. So the a lot of the challenges we had or like solutions we had to create like. I was like, you'd just be like at a loss some days of like, well, how do we even solve that? I remember one, like we had a customer call and want to unsubscribe. They're like, Hey, like I, I, you need to come get your iPad. Like I need to get it out of my store. And we're like, why? And they're like, I've had to replace two windows because people keep smashing my window to steal the iPad. Like <laughs> it's not worth it to me. Like this is like, I'm not, not going to keep replacing my glass window. And like, I just remember being like, Oh, like, that's kind of obvious. I mean, like the answer, the easy answer could have been like, well, just like take it down at night. Like, don't like just take the iPad to the back of the office. But like from a a business standpoint, like that's also the last thing I want to tell them because what's the chance that that iPad sits in that back of office, the battery dies and it never gets put in front of the cash register again. Right. Right. Pretty high. Right. Out Um, of sight, out of mind. Totally. So I was like, all right, there's gotta be like a better way to do it. So we actually built and we had like a, every iPad had a heartbeat that would come back to our server essentially every five minutes. And what we did was we figured out like if we have their business hours, right. And when those heartbeats come back, we could check the heartbeat and the time of it. And if it's like after hours, just take the brightness of the iPad, dim it all the way down and actually close the app with just a black screen. So like it's technically still running, but just like offline mode, so to speak. And then as the heartbeat comes back and we know it's like a half hour before the business opens, like, turn up the brightness, drop the black screen, turn on the app. It was just like kind of a creative solution for a problem that like we never thought we were going to have to solve, but like was, uh, I don't know, just like one of those moments in my career. I'm like, this is like, this is what makes this so fun, right? Like this is like a challenge that has not been done before, but like we have a, a moment here to like innovate on what to do. Right. Who, who even thinks about a case like this? I yeah. didn't even know you could control like from within an app, you could control the brightness of an OS uh, of the OS. Yeah. Oh yeah. Probably scary what you can control. <laughs> yeah. It, and all, all the iPads like too, like, like you have to give it permissions to do that. Right. So right. like belly actually owned those iPads. So when we basically box and ship them out to our customers, we would provision them and set them all up so that like it had that level of capability. Yeah. 
what is the truthfulness in this statement? At some point, you were probably Belly was Apple's biggest purchaser of iPads. Was that correct? I have no idea. Maybe <laughs> like if you walked through the office, like I think you came in back, like the lobby had like no less than, yeah, like 10,000 iPad, iPad boxes. boxes. Yeah. yeah. It was impressive. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. We, it was like difficult to procure them. We were buying them so fast at one point. Like I remember we were just like, we would look on like CDW and Best Buy and just like anywhere we could get like bulk stacks of iPads. We were buying them. So yeah. Yeah. I was one of the first people to buy an iPad when it first came out and, and I designed an iPad app and, and stuff like that just to learn. But I remember the the buying experience uh, of being the first, you know, in Chicago mm-hmm. in on Michigan Avenue. Yeah. It was a it was a very fun, interesting experience. They had the red carpet, they had like, you know, the the Apple people in their red or blue shirts on each yeah. side. And they it's funny, like they they make you feel like a rock star. Like yeah. cheering you and, and kind of high fiving you, and it was—I thought it was just so funny because they made you feel so happy for dropping, you know, tons of money on them. Really, it's <laughs> like it's not like you did anything. You just, yeah. but but it felt like a rock star experience. Uh, but, so, but yeah, that's an incredible. Like, so if you think about customer experience, like it's not just like the digital experience. Like I tell folks all the time, like the experience of our company probably starts within marketing and like mm-hmm. an organic search term. Right. And then it probably goes to the website, but it probably carries itself through a sales rep or something like that. Right. Like it's not, not just the product we build. It's, it's every single touch point. And I think Apple, I believe has like highest revenue per square foot from a yes. retail end. Right. Even like, more than Tiffany's. Yeah. Right. It's it, insane. But they've nailed that customer experience. Right. And like, um, pretty innovative in that. Yeah. I, I, yeah. Every time I go to an Apple store, it's, it's great that anybody can check you out. You don't have to go in line at a cashier and yeah. you know, they have this little app iPhone with a little a card swiper and, and you can just take care of it there. And then they'll just, somebody yeah. in the back will go get what you need and bring it up. It's, it's a great, well-designed experience. They used to, I don't know if they do anymore. They used to be able to check yourself out. I remember like being in San Francisco and I forgot actually like my charger. So I walked over to the, the Apple store and I just checked myself out through my phone, like in the huh. like Apple store app. And I was terrified that I was going to get arrested walking out with this charger because I didn't <laughs> talk to anyone. I just walked in, grabbed it and like grabbed my phone, paid for it. And wow. Yeah. I, I, I've I never tried that. Uh, I, don't know, I don't know if they still do it or not. Uh, I'm sure it like doesn't work for like laptops and things, but like <laughs> some of the stuff on the shelves, yeah, you just grab. Yeah. You care a lot about design, but also design education. And there's mm-hmm. like a, I think, uh, you know, a certain element of importance in your life. You, you've written books on, on design, HTML coding, but you're, you're also designer director, instructor at Starter League, yeah. which is an amazing Chicago startup. You're advisory on Design Nation Labs. So talk to us about, you know, design education and, and the, your importance and how you think about that. Yeah. So this is all kind of like it, it ties back into some of the nonprofit stuff. Like everything everything I'm like doing, I'm trying to think about like, what is the, is there, is there a double play in this? Like, can I learn something and give something back or do some good? If that makes sense. And in college, like I was going to college in like a time where like no one really knew what was web design, what would like, there, there was programming classes, right? You could be a computer science major, but there wasn't like a digital multimedia field, right? It was like, oh, you can go, you can go study graphic design. Uh, I was like, that like, 
that's kind of it, but not exactly what I want to do, right? I want to be far more on like the digital and the experience lens. So while going to actual school, I just started going to, I went to school in Phoenix and there was a, a meetup called Refresh Phoenix that would happen at a web design studio. I think it was every Wednesday. So I just started going to the studio and half the time it was just like, there were open hours where like they'd get pizza and you could just work. And I would just watch them and learn and just like, look at what they were building, how they were designing it and coming to realize that like, I'm learning some interesting thing in like school, but I'm learning like fundamentals. I'm learning color theory and hierarchy and typography. Like I'm not learning like the ends of, of how to actually structure and build a website. Like I'm not going deep into HTML and CSS and JavaScript and like different ways to manipulate the DOM to do interesting things. So I like, I like have this affinity for like the community helping me learn that. So when I moved to Chicago, like the first thing I did was like, is there a refresh Chicago? Like, does that program exist here? And it didn't, but I found a few folks online, like talking about it and wanting to start it. And for me, it was like, I like, I, I have nothing to teach, but I can order pizza. I can pick up chairs and arrange things. Like, how can I help? And got connected to a group. And for well over five years, like we organized refresh Chicago. And it was like, kind of giving back into that community, but selfishly, like I'm learning, right? Like I get to every month here, someone who is at the top of their profession, like educate on us on what they're doing. And at the same time, like ended up building just an incredible network through that community too. That's how I got a job at Lightbank. That's how I met Logan at Belly. Like it like all kind of stemmed from that. That's how I met, you know, Mike and Neil, right. And then building out the starter league and things like that. So it's always been one where like, I wanted to kind of give back into what folks have given me throughout that. And probably like a tune true in that I come from a family of educators. Both my parents were teachers. So it's like, uh, I was, the the one, <laughs> yeah, I was like the one person not to go become a teacher, but somehow like kind of backed into it from that degree. And it's like, it's still selfish. Like as much as like, I feel as I've given to folks and like what I'm teaching them challenging me, asking questions, like the five whys I would get back from every lecture that like, I'd be like, Hey, like, let me follow up with you. I don't know yet. Like, I have read like the HTML and CSS spec front to back multiple times because someone's like, I don't get it. Like, how does that work? Why does that do that? Why do browsers render it differently? It like, they've pushed me a lot to grow in my career. So it's been uh, very symbiotic and that like educating, I think is also the best way to learn yourself. Yeah, I, I, that is so true. I come from it from another angle. I, I used to do martial arts and I didn't suck at it. I was pretty okay. You were great. Yeah. <laughs> Thank yeah, you. you. You can brag about that. But uh, for the longest time, I, my instructor at some point is like, hey, you're good enough to start teaching. You should teach, you know, like you'll, you'll like it, you enjoy it. And at the time I was competing, I was kind of at the top of my game. I'm like, ah, that's a, that's a waste of time. I, I, I'm, you know, I'm trying to like achieve these things, right? Yeah. And, and so teaching was not, not that interesting. But at some point I did warm up to it and I found it so gratifying. I, and, and like you said, it, it is, they challenge you, you you're forced to not everybody learns the same way. So you have to come yeah. up with a uh, different way. You have to challenge yourself to, to find different styles of teaching so that people absorb. And then also in the process of you explaining it, I think you, you learn the craft deeper. Yeah. Uh, so I, I, I would say I became a better martial artist for, for it, for teaching. Um, yeah. Do you, have you, have you experienced the same thing like in your mentoring, like through tech stars or other incubators where like, 
getting to talk to different businesses and even if they have similar problems that they're facing that you face, like it's different contexts and lenses that like can sharpen like your overall focus on that stuff. Yeah, it's and, and then even this endeavor is is a selfish thing to to learn, right? Like that insight yeah. on belly of you know, I would have never thought of that, right? But now it's it's kind of ingrained and and that little nugget. So every every new business, every new startup that, you know, we're we're mentoring, they have interesting things that you can learn from because you you know, you only have your experience mm-hmm. and uh, they bring their experience and it's a very you can learn so much yeah. uh, from other people. So, yeah. Yeah. It's, it's bi-directional. <laughs> yeah, no, it definitely is. It definitely yeah, is. The, um, the student also learns from, the teacher also learns from the student. So I want to hear more about what you're doing with uh, Lead Honestly. So, Yeah. So Lead Honestly is a side project and one of just utter love. At Belly, I led the design and product team. My good friend Darby led the engineering team. And in an early stage startup, like not one without its its trouble, without its woes, right? We would find some traction, raise some money, and then perhaps struggle, right? So then we'd have to lay some folks off, like cut down to the bone and then try again. And we'd get some traction, raise some money, hire a bunch, and then like struggle a little bit. And throughout all of that, like it it's a hard experience to, to work in that environment, right? And one where we knew like, we're probably not paying folks as much as they could make elsewhere. This isn't the easiest job in the world. How do you keep people motivated? How do you keep them connected? How do you keep them tied to like the mission of what we're doing? So Jeremy and I thought a lot about like, well, what are we doing in our one-on-ones with them? And what are the types of questions we're asking them? And how do we like give them like an adverse advantage in their careers by being here? So we started writing out different questions for every one-on-one meeting. So if we had a one-on-one, I wasn't sitting down and saying like, hey, how's it going? How are you feeling? And you being like, well, the same as it was last week and the week before that, like some things are good, some things are bad and and life goes on. But the questions were always different, right? Week to week. It was like, hey, what did you learn this week? What's the biggest challenge you overcame of you know, who on the team is doing something incredible, but it's going under-recognized and really just trying to change the conversation, but do so in a way that was very self-reflective too, right? So rather than saying, are you making progress on your goals? The question would be, are you doing your best to make progress on your goals? Where an individual starts to has to give them self-feedback and be more reflective in the approach. You know what? Like I had some time off Friday morning because a few meetings got canceled and like, I let off the gas and I didn't try and push forward like the projects I'm owning, right? They would give themselves better feedback than I could ever give them. But all it took was the right question and the right phrasing of it. And Darby and I used to do this through just Google spreadsheets, right? Where we just keep all the questions and kind of share them out to individuals. And as is often the case, like when, when Belly was kind of folding in some manner, it was like, well, what were all the lessons we had in this organization? What was like one of the valuable things that came out of it? And the loyalty program aside, it was, we developed this really interesting way to like lead teams through some kind of intense environments. And at that point, we had shared it with other leaders at different organizations and shared some of the questions and enough people had told us like, you could probably charge for this. Like this could be a business. And I remember it was between Christmas and New Year's. And I was like, you know what? I'll just put together a landing page. We'll connect it to Stripe and we'll throw it up on Product Hunt and see what happens. Um, And like no product, not a product at all, but like 
uh, what looked like a nice product, right? Just kind of like stubbing it out. Just in a, same thing as your Apple Watch app, right? Like it, it probably didn't exist, but like, right. here's what it could look like. I remember posting it before launch, going to lunch and coming back and having like 10 paying customers and calling Darby and being like, I don't know what you're doing this weekend, but like you need to cancel those plans because we have to build I guess this we're <laughs> Yeah, this yeah. Like, like, like Monday, these people are expecting questions from us. Like we got to get moving. That was five years ago. So throughout the last five years, it's been just slowly building, iterating on that platform. There are you know, hundreds of managers, thousands of employees on it every single day now, by which they're they're leading their one-on-one sessions and kind of growing their organizations. Yeah. And it's it's been just like incredible, just like seeing so many different lenses of an organization as well, just in building that business. And you know, in a growing company, like I, nobody ever taught me to be a manager. I, yeah. I wouldn't know what questions to ask, right? Like, of course, I did. What a lot of people probably do is either fumble, ask the same stupid questions, maybe Google, but really having no framework. So having, having some, some framework, like you, you've done it for, for Belly, which is a fast growing co- company, I think it's really helpful. And then I love the idea that you're pricing it per manager, that the experience yeah. there is, is very frictionless, right? Like it's like the idea of like, oh crap, I have like five direct reports. It's going to cost me blah, blah, blah. I got to get yeah. it. It's like, oh, no, it's just for me, really. And then it's, it's yeah. another, the ex- user experience there of the pricing, I think, aligns with the value, right? Well, it's, you're absolutely on it. Like for us, like it was, um, we want this to work for the managers. This is like, this is not a performance management tool. This is not like an HR product, right? Like it is priced low. It's priced per manager. Like, so they could, they could pay for it themselves if they don't want to expense it. That price is not going to change based off how many people use it or how many meetings they have. Only like a few years in, did we actually build out the ability to actually have an org, like an org count. So if you had managers and you wanted them to use it, you could add them to the platform. But even in doing that, we designed it in a way that like that hierarchy in the org cannot see responses from employees below the chain, Mm. right? So if you're a manager and you're having one-on-ones in the platform, your boss cannot see what your employees are saying inside the honestly. It's just your direct report. Totally. Because it'll fracture the trust, right? Like if if I knew like uh, my boss is reading this, like I'm going to be a bit more reserved. I'm probably going to be a little quieter. I'm not going to rock the boat too much. So we've been explicit in that. Like you don't, you just don't get to see that information. And if that's like upsetting, then like we're probably not the right tool for you. Right. We'll give insights around like, how many meetings are they having? Are they actually like engaging those in those conversations? Right. But we don't actually give up any of the data. Got it. Got it. Well, we want to cover some of the stuff that you're currently doing in, in yeah. Active Campaign and, and what product design looks like in an Active Campaign. So, can you uh, talk about that? Yeah. Active Campaign's been, it'll be four years, I think, next month. Yeah. And just, an utter incredible journey. So Active Campaign is a it's a customer experience automation platform. So largely built around automation. How do you do sales automation, marketing automation, but not stopping there and allowing automation throughout the end-to-end customer experience. I joined the company was uh, right around 100 people and five designers. And there was no distinction or difference between brand or product design. It was just we're, we are designers in this world. Just a pool of designers. Yeah, yeah. It's just like we're, we're like whatever the need is, we take. 
So four years in, now we are a team of 30 designers across brand, product, uh, design systems, and operations, and an org that is what was 100 people nearing 1,000. So a good like 10x growth across kind of the board in some of this. Yeah, it's uh, a team that is uh, working cross-functionally, very closely with product management, engineering management, product marketers, and every you know designer essentially has a feature, an outcome, or a section of kind of like our core platform that they're driving forward. And, you know, a miscellaneous endeavor of folks on email marketing, CRM, uh, integrations and app studios, our live chat product, web personalization, the different channels we have. So there's a, there's a number of even just, I'd say, product lines within the business today. So kind of an incredible story and one that's developing, right? Like I still think we're, we're on that one yard line of really just getting started. Yeah, it, well, there's, I think in the marketing automation world, uh, companies like, like yourselves, it's, it's an exciting space to be in right now. Yeah. yeah. The company itself, like, so that campaign's like 18 years old, right? So not not young by any stretch, but... Started an email, right? Is that, uh, is that an email? Largely, yeah. Back in the day, a number of different products, right? So it had a ticketing system for a while, like just a bunch of tools for small businesses to help run their business. Then it was essentially understanding automation is really what makes a lot of this work. So let's kind of like trim some focus, go deeper into it. And very specifically started with some email, like marketing and automation around email. That then grew into, hey, let's add a CRM so that these same businesses can keep the deals and opportunities organized within their contacts. And then layered in live chat, landing pages, a number of different products throughout the last few years. And one where the, you know, there's 150,000 businesses using active campaign today. And it's just an incredible opportunity. Like for me, like on that side of, I think the economy runs through those businesses, those smaller businesses, right? The real innovation in our society, I believe, happens there. So, what's the typical client? What's the typical small business that uses active campaign? Well, it can vary, right? That's like a, a blessing and curse we have, and like the, some of the challenges. It, it could be a solo entrepreneur who runs a Shopify store, right? Mm-hmm. And is selling handcrafted leather wallets. It could be Virgin Mobile's recruiting team, though, uh, a team that is within a large enterprise, but is still operating in some sense with some small business like scale and, and you know functions just in that they're within a larger org. So it, it's really hard to say. You know, the majority of that business actually happens outside the United States. There isn't one core vertical that stands out over all others. Like It is sincerely a platform first and one by which you, you, know, you have a lot of different personas in that mix, if you will. So it's fun and challenging to that same respect. Okay. Any interesting design insights in designing, you know, the active campaign, you know, various tools and dashboards and interfaces? Yeah. Yeah. One of the things that's like really interesting is if you're working with those small and growing businesses, a lot of people think, and I like, I don't believe this is correct, but a lot of people think like you have to make it simple, right? Like, And generally speaking, when they say you have to make it simple, it's one by which you have to remove features. You have to obfuscate complexity. And I don't think that's right. Like most small businesses are incredibly intelligent. Like they're running a small business. That's not an easy task, right? Um, What they want is for it to be intuitive. So when we like think about how we're designing and what we're building, we'll think about making something simple, but not simplistic, 
right? We should be very guided in how we're leading them to the next best action. But at any given moment, we're also surrendering control to say, you know better than us what to do here, go for it. But if you're not sure or you want help, like we got your back and we can walk you through that with tutorials and recipes and templates and like really help you get set up, but you're not locked or constrained to any of that. That as a design principle and kind of like guiding philosophy is, is challenging, right? Like how do I give them all of this firepower, but not make it inundating and still keep it intuitive and approachable, right? Like, yeah. and that is one of the, like the funnest challenges every day of like, all right, when is the right moment to show this? Where does this belong? What are the caveats or edge cases we might want to be aware of or just consider throughout? So it's uh, it's fun. And it's like, it grows as we add more products, as we add more different like channels throughout the business, but a good challenge, like one that, that kind of say motivates us day in and day out. Yeah. It's interesting. You say, you know, I simplistic versus intuitive, right? It does one, it's not mutually exclusive and one doesn't have to be just because I'm a small business doesn't mean that the interface need to be almost infantile, right? It's like like a consumer onboarding. I'll speak of my experience using HubSpot and I've HubSpot CRM and I've given the feedback to some of the designers who've asked for feedback. And I was like, I wish the information was more dense. Like mm. they've designed it so mm-hmm. like so big, kind of like a baby interface, right? Like yeah. everything's big. I was like, well, I need more information. I'm not that stupid, right? <laughs> I can, uh, <laughs> even though I'm a small business, I, I do want to be able to do this and that. And, and to your point, right? It, it doesn't, the, the interface can be intuitive, yet information dense. It doesn't totally. have to be, you know, sparse and a lot of white space. And like, I, I just... Yeah. To see more information, I need to do more. <laughs> well, yeah, that's like, that's yeah. that the difference between being like uh, beautiful or practical, right? Like, mm-hmm. um, or fashion over functionality, if you will. Yeah, like, exactly. That looks great, but I don't right. care because it's not allowing me to get my job done. I mean, yeah, look at Bloomberg terminals, right? And, and mm-hmm. st- stock marking, trading applications and stuff. They, they're very information dense, but they can still be intuitive for the people who know how to use them. Yeah. Yeah. I like to believe we can get both, right? Like yeah. um, we can keep it dense, but still like sure. make sure yeah. we're exposing the right hierarchy, like have yeah. the right information architecture in there, like allow you to get to the information you want quickly. And it, you know, it doesn't need to be just like a default browser rendering of it either, right? Like the, yep. like the database was regurgitated into the UI. Like we can still, we can still clean that up. Absolutely. Uh, but largely the design should get out of the way, right? Yeah. 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 Good, good design. Yeah. It sounds like maybe one definition is it it gets out of the way. Yeah. Yeah. I could support that. (laughs) Selfishly speaking, I noticed you as a designer partook a lot in, you know, you have your foot, one foot in venture, right? Working Mm -hmm. at Light Bank, working, you know, there's proto ventures and then you're involved in tech stars. So Give us a taste of what that's like. And yeah, so if you're, you know, if you're a designer who wants to work in venture, what, what, is, what are the paths and the avenues and what, how can they contribute? Yeah, I got lucky in like some of that where I got tied into Light Pink by essentially like freelancing for one of their portfolio companies. And I think like at some point, like 
it was like, well, hey, hold on, wait, like we're paying Shay more than like if we just hired him, like as a contractor, <laughs> like what if we brought him in-house and had him work on a number of different startups? So I got lucky, kind of like backed into it from like a, a freelancing opportunity and just trying to help someone who I met through Refresh Chicago, oddly enough. And I, like, to me, design has always been about how to use design to solve a problem, right? Like, not how to just make something look good. It's, it's far deeper than the, the veneer or like the surface of it. And I think that gravitates and works really well in product like businesses and in that kind of venture capital lens. And been lucky enough to, to work in it and be around enough people and like share that experience with them that I think it's, I kind of get pulled into it now, right? And where any designer, I think who kind of like kind of showcase that and builds up like the community of it, like gets drafted into some of these venture opportunities. And for me, it's, it kind of goes back to that, that education and like, you know, getting a double play out of it where I can go in and spend time with different companies in these portfolios and hopefully I'm helping them and giving them like some direction or guidance or just things to think about, but I'm also learning from them and their unique nature of, you know, what type of challenges they're solving, where they're headed. And it's hopefully like we're both growing in that, right? Even yesterday, I was, I was spending some time with a company that's currently in Techstars and they're getting ready, you know, they're putting together the outline of their pitch uh, for demo day. And just interesting, like, before we even got into it, I was like, well, what, what's your goal? What are you trying to solve? Right? Like, what's the, what, where's your problems kind of sit in this? And what's your hope throughout the program? And then, okay, well, let's go look at the deck then and see where does that message come out? What is the story you're telling? How does it lead to the action you're seeking? And just to do that with other people, right? To, to have that interaction and kind of the brainstorm is they were saying things and asking questions that like, I've never thought about, right? And just like getting <laughs> me to like, even just sharpen some of my own thoughts and how I might like, do that later inside my own business or, you know, the things we're working on an active campaign. So it's always been very give and take and that like, hopefully we're both learning on both ends of it. You were a partner at Proto Ventures. Did you start that as well? I did not. No. So there's like a, just a group of individuals, um, more of like a venture studio than a venture mm. firm, if you will. I see. Hey, like we're for like more journalists, entrepreneurs, right? So designers, engineers, marketers, support folks, operational folks. What if we got together and had a few ideas and put those together and see if we could get traction behind any of them? Uh, and maybe we do some clientele or services work around that to offset it. So throughout like that program and with those folks, like I've, I've built a few different products and more so been uh, an advisor and mentor to many others. And an incredible network now that's grown probably into the hundreds uh, of different like folks operating in that studio where uh, a few I stay fairly close to and spend some time with on a, a regular cadence and one where an active campaign, if I'm ever working on something or I have a question, like they're the first group I go to in many respects. Hey, does anyone in this community have any ideas about X, Y, or Z? Yeah. And more times than not, like they're, they can quickly direct me uh, to the right person, if not have that person within the, the studio itself. Great. Well, thank you so much. Any, I know we're getting up on time here. How does one get in touch with you? Uh, well, thanks for having me, Peck. I really appreciate yeah. it. This has been fun. The best way to reach me would be either Twitter or LinkedIn. If you just Google Shay Howe, both should pop up. I believe I'm Shay Howe on both of those. So. Well, we'll link it in the show notes Perfect. as well as to Lead Honestly, an active campaign. Yeah, I appreciate it. Thank you. Yeah, yeah. thank you so much for uh, being on the show and being our guest and sharing your story. I really appreciate it. Yeah, my pleasure. I, uh, I enjoyed it. And um, 
it's always fun to tell the story. So thank you. Yeah, it's, it's good to learn from other people. And it's also great to reconnect with friends. Yeah, absolutely. It's an excuse to do both. I love it. Yes. <laughs> thank you for joining us on this episode of What is UX? If you like this episode, be sure to subscribe on your favorite podcast platform. If you leave us a review, I'll make sure to shout it out on the show. If you have any questions, send them to questions at whatisux.co and our guest and I will try to answer them on the show. And you can always find us on whatisux.co. See you on the next one.